Hello and welcome back to Filmonomics at Slated. I'm Colin Brown, your podcast host for the series that examines the film industry from the inside out. And what a complex and so often contradictory business this whole world of visual storytelling can be. As I laid out in my white papers on film financing that I wrote for Slated a couple of years ago, there are just so many competing interests to satisfy when deciding what ideas are worth that long and winding road to the screen. Not only do you have to find the shiniest, sharpest needle within that huge haystack of possible projects, you then have to thread that needle multiple times as well. As I came to understand, the industry's most reliable producers are those that can combine an almost radar-like sense for where the zeitgeist is heading with a business framework that both shields them from disaster and arms them for success. And above all, they need a great sense of story. Which brings us to this week's guest, Sophia Dilly. She's the Vice President of Development and Production for Film and Digital Media at Route One Entertainment in Santa Monica. You'll hear more about the projects that Route One has been involved with in the interview coming up. But to give you an initial sense of Route One's acumen for sourcing ideas, it's worth noting that only a year after the company was founded in 2009, it grabbed the rights to Damien Chazelle's kidnapping screenplay, The Claim. That's a full three years before Chazelle made the short version of Whiplash that launched his Oscar-winning career. Signs are that The Claim will finally go into production this year or next. And should that thriller find success with audiences, it won't be because it was made to capitalize on Chazelle's sudden name recognition in the wake of La La Land. It will be because the material itself mesmerizes. As Sophia notes, filmgoers do sense when they're being cynically exploited, as opposed to genuinely entertained. If you can achieve a story that everyone wants to hear, or a certain part of the population wants to hear or see, you're going to get them. And it's a matter of how you position it. But if you start with, hmm, how can I make money off of my audience? <laughs> I think it's pretty clear that's where you started. Over the course of eight years, Route One has grown into one of the more dynamic finance and production companies active today. It was co-founded by Russell Levine, who serves as CEO, and Jeffrey Ubben, the activist investor who spearheads Value Act Capital, a $16 billion investment fund based in San Francisco that has put money into companies such as Microsoft, Reuters, Rolls-Royce, Martha Stewart, and Adobe. Hubbin also has a significant minority stake in UTA, the United Talent Agency, and is on the board of 21st Century Fox, after Value Act acquired a $1 billion stake in the Hollywood studio conglomerate in 2014. With Hubbin's backing, Route One has become a fascinating example of a boutique film company that deploys a venture capital-style model in the way it sources and develops a global content portfolio. As a hedge fund manager, Urban likes to find trailing edge companies and steer them in the transition from old tech to new tech. The direct-to-consumer revolution now engulfing the entire entertainment industry, a wrenching process that is cutting out so many of the industry's middlemen, means that Route One is constantly re-evaluating its own content strategies. Unusually in a film business so notoriously slow to adjust, Route One is not afraid to venture down new production and distribution paths. So I asked Sophia how she goes about selecting projects in such a shifting environment. What is she looking for these days? Well, unfortunately for me, it changes every day. <laughs> Literally, I feel like my mandate is constantly in flux. Um, and I think that's for a variety of reasons. You know, you always are looking for the same fundamentals of like a good story. There's a certain 
set of rules I think I always look for is like, am I engaged? Am I interested? Like, did I want to finish the story? Am I turning the pages? Like when I'm reading scripts, I, I, you, you automatically can kind of see the difference between something that's well-written and something that isn't. The way we weed through content is we do hold it to a certain standard when it's on the page. Uh, so, so that never really changes. But in terms of what we're looking for story-wise, it's always trying to predict what will fit into the zeitgeist in two to three years from now. And what's relevant now is also important because you're trying to attract your talent, your directors. And so there's a certain level of balancing, okay, what is in a story now that's important that will capture the attention of filmmakers and talent? And what do we think? Is this going to be profound and good and interesting and viable in two to three years. So you're always battling with that. It isn't literally day by day, but it adjusts a lot. I called last year the year of the drug cartels because I got, I think, 60 scripts that were about running drugs into the United States. It was like, you know, ex-con who becomes a drug smuggler. It was very, it was like, you could tell that everyone had watched Breaking Bad and was so in love with that story. On some level, they wanted to tell a different piece of it. And so I was just like, every script I got, and I went, you know, I think we might not want to do this because there's obvious, the market's oversaturated with it. Sophia first joined Route One in 2010. The daughter of an award-winning production designer, she grew up on film sets. She then went off to study film production, political science, and project management during her university years before landing her first industry jobs working for director Peter Berg on his films Hancock and Battleship. Over the course of her seven years at Route One, the company has shifted gears in ways that have mirrored the course changes across the independent filmmaking landscape as a whole. Route One is a production development finance company. We've been around since 2009. I joined the company in 2010. Um, we've kind of gone through multiple iterations the first being we were a development company that was focused mainly on just finding really interesting and great material and helping package and then um, set it up elsewhere. And then in around 2012, we secured production financing out of a sovereign fund in South Korea. So it enabled us to put equity into films in the 15 to $35 million range um, and higher if it was a co-financing situation. And basically in that model, we were making movies that were highly commercial, highly marketable movies that could be made for a certain budget, sort of the middle class of film, I suppose, is sort of what that range is. Definitely foreign sales driven and a little bit more in the later 90s, early aughts sort of style of film. We made five movies out of that fund. The first one was A Walk in the Woods. Um, with Robert Redford and Nick Nolte and Emma Thompson. Um, and then we did Equals with Kristen Stewart and Nicholas Holt. And then we did a two-picture deal with STX, Free State of Jones, Secret in Their Eyes, and then Colossal with Anne Hathaway and Jason Sudeikis. And then we have a couple of movies that we actually ran through our lead investor, who's out of San Francisco, and we kind of did a straight equity deal. And it was sort of a new test of a model on where we are now, with the first being Tallulah, Tallulah, we fully financed. It's a just over $3 million budget. And it's a movie that we were really focused on trying to find something that works for the OTT, something that was female-driven. And uh, we obviously had a female director and writer. 
uh, Sean Hayner, who was amazing. And we kind of have worked with that movie and turned it into a couple others. So we turned that the profits from that movie into Landline and um, are moving forward. We put some additional financing into the circle and we're hoping to get a couple of movies going this year. And so we're, we're in a little bit of a transitional phase as a financier. We're working more in this space that we think the market's going. We don't necessarily believe that the traditional foreign sales model is that viable anymore. And we're still focused on finding really great, awesome material. In making these transitions, Route 1 has tended to be a little ahead of the industry curve. The Korean fund that Sophia alludes to here is the $110 million Sovic Global Contents Investment Fund that brought Route 1 together with two of Korea's leading entertainment players, Lotta Entertainment and CJ, in a partnership with the South Korean government to make thrillers, comedies and action pictures. It was the largest entertainment fund in Korean history, forged at a time before Asian money rushed again into Hollywood, only to start retreating this past year. The foreign pre-sales model that Sophia refers to is also backtracking. In the past, independent filmmakers could raise a portion of their production budgets by selling rights in advance to a few distributors on a country-by-country -country basis, and then raise the balance through back loans. The problem with this model is that pre-sales are so dependent on securing those few actors who are popular across the global stage. And since so few names are readily attainable, or even necessarily appropriate for the project in hand, the alternative for production companies like Route One is to fully finance films themselves, or else partner up with other sources of equity financing. They do so in the hope that the completed film will either attract distribution offers that will more than cover their costs, or provide them with a sufficient share of the future revenues to justify that initial outlay. But then along came Netflix, Amazon, and all the other over-the-top streaming platforms to muddy the waters even more. The more these OTTs hoover up worldwide video-on-demand rights, the more that the value of DVD and pay TV rights that underpin those distribution deals in different territories have cratered. So, just like Route 1 has done, production companies are turning more and more to these platforms as their primary buyers. Which begs the question, how has this new industry dynamic changed the decision-making process when greenlighting projects? I think a lot of it is speculation. A lot of it is grounded in real changes that are happening. And I think the disruption that Amazon and Netflix and the OTTs have brought to the table is that they don't rely on the same type of sales. Obviously, with a subscription model, their basis for material is really going after the markets that are going to stay on their platform due to a piece of content. And I think with the foreign sales model, you're dependent on not necessarily a lack of sophistication, but uh, the reliability of an audience abroad, really, to come and see a movie star over and over and over again. And it's really hard to predict who's going to be successful and who's not. I mean, Equals is a really good example for us. We had Kristen Stewart as one of the biggest stars at the time and, and had just come off Twilight. And, you know, there was a lot of trust that she'd be the kind of person who could open this movie abroad and in the U.S. And, and it's a great film. It's a beautiful film. And I think it's just a testament to the, the fact that audiences are sophisticated and it, and it really depends on the story. The story matters. I think probably 10 years ago, people were excited about seeing Jason Statham in a movie. And now it's like we've seen him in 30 movies. <laughs> and, you know, your audience has become more just aware of the system. So I think I think the U.S. has been experiencing it earlier than the, the rest of the world. But Everyone's sort of started getting to the same page. And, and as theatrical experience has become more event-driven, I think we're going to see a bigger divide between the types of movies that get wide releases and the types that don't. 
So you start to kind of read the market based on what you're getting, based on what's already out there, based on what's being made and what you think will work in the future. And also to go off of what we've been talking about, you know, predicting what we think will work on a streaming platform, right? You, it gives you a little more liberty to, to play around with who you think your audience is because you're no longer going after this sort of nebulous four quadrant or two quadrant or just the 15 to 25 year old male. You're really looking at, okay, is there an audience for this? Who is that audience? And will the OTTs respond to that because they're going to go, okay, we, this is, we know exactly how to market it. I think, you know, my eyes were opened with Tallulah. We, we had a great experience marketing the film with Netflix. And it was so interesting because that's where everything happens for them, right? It's like when you open their platform, it's like, how do we get somebody to click on your movie? And it was just fascinating because, you know, they don't share any of their data, but knowing that your interaction with like the thumbnail and the images and what you've seen and who's in it, they can really uh, strategize around how they algorithmically get it to you. So it's fascinating. I'm, I'm excited by it. It means that there's more ways to get your content seen. More ways to get content seen and also more ways also to experiment in how to present that content to potential audiences. There's been considerable media attention given to the way that Netflix and Amazon use data to help determine the likely audience appeal of future films and episodic entertainment that they acquire or invest in. But so often overlooked in such discussions is the way that those streaming platforms are also changing the marketing conventions as well. The theatrical rules of engagement are being rewritten. They're different in that on a tr in a traditional release, and I've only done this a couple of times, so I'm not, you know, I'm not an expert by any means, but in the traditional release, what the conversations tend to be more around you're getting your billboard, you have your billing block, you're going to have your image that everybody's approved. And in the Netflix Amazon universe, I might have a thumbnail of a making a murderer, right, that works better for me than it does for you. So, And they know that data. They're going to go, okay, we know she responded to this image, which means we can give her this image and she'll respond to that. You know, they're doing all this constant sort of psychological tests with how people are responding. And so that's a totally different conversation. And in fact, I found it fascinating from the deal making on the front end of a film, because, you know, you often make deals with talent where, you know, the talent's tied to each other. And that really screws up Netflix and Amazon because they can't put 25 people in a photo. You know, you're tied, you're all tied to each other and they have to fit it into this little tiny one inch photo on your screen. And so it's complicated. It was really eye opening for me that you want to pay attention to that on the front end because it can affect how I might respond to Ellen Page, you might respond to Alice and Janie, you might want to flip those thumbnails based on your user. And in a traditional model where it's, they're tied to each other, you're going to have both, it makes the image harder to reach its, its true core audience. So it, it was, that was fascinating and totally a different conversation than what we'd had theatrically, because theatrically is just, yep, there's the poster, there's the billboard, there's a trailer, we put it out on these traditional means. They're not doing anything where, oh, how do we know, you know, Colin, you were driving today, we noticed you saw that billboard. <laughs> they don't have that. They don't know who's looking at what. They can only kind of speculate and track in their own unique way. So I, I think this is much more hard data. They, they, they can really see what's working and what isn't. All this hard data has given companies like Netflix and Amazon the confidence to ignore the old rules. While traditional distributors strive to make the numbers work when thinking about buying films at festivals and markets, Netflix can simply swoop in, as it did with Tallulah, and pay a reported $5 million for worldwide VOD rights before even knowing how Sundance audiences and critics might react. Even though this was director Sean Hedder's first feature, 
they already knew the impact of her writing from her work on Orange is the New Black, plus whatever audience insights it might have gleaned from the 2007 film Juno when it comes to Ellen Page, Alison Janney, and offbeat stories about motherhood. Not only can they operate by a different set of numbers, they don't even have to share those numbers. Knowing that Route One's co-founder is a San Francisco investor immersed in the world of industrial transformation, I wonder whether all these creative upheavals are embraced as part of the company culture. After all, the company's own tagline is redefining commercial filmmaking in Hollywood. Yeah, definitely. I think that one of my favorite things and certainly why I've worked at this company for so long is that we aren't afraid to innovate. And I think that that is critical now in any part of the entertainment industry. It's like, it's very clear that if you are not able to adjust to the changing tides and really think differently and approach projects differently and thinking about where they're going to fit, the supply is so high. You know, every everyone can do this now. Everyone can make content and everyone can make good content if they're talented enough and they have access to these materials. And, and because of that, you know, you're not talking about just seven major conglomerates. You're talking about like hundreds of companies. And if you can't keep up with that pace, it's just not going to work. And that I think is a very San Francisco startup tech mentality. You're constantly evaluating how can you adjust your company. You're constantly looking at, okay, this isn't working, but where, where's the opportunity in that? And how do we shift in our approach? And again, that's sort of why I was laughing at the beginning, saying my mandate changes all the time because we are very much so geared in this way where we're on our feet and adjusting a lot. And there's positives and negatives to that because obviously then you're in this constant, you know, constant sprint almost. I attribute that definitely to the San Francisco zeitgeist. You know, it's like that's their worldview. A prime example of the imaginative leaps that Route 1 is willing to take is Nacho Vigalondo's sci-fi black comedy Colossal, starring Anne Hathaway and Jason Sudeikis. This is not your typical monster movie, despite the scenes of a giant lizard ravaging the Korean city of Seoul, but rather an allegorical tale about a hard-drinking woman on the verge of a breakdown who returns to her hometown in America to try to put her life back together. Even the way the film was acquired and distributed broke new ground premiering at last year's Toronto Film Festival, it was bought by a mysterious distributor, later revealed to be the intriguing new upstart Neon, which then partnered up with Legion M, the first fan-owned media company, to help bring the film to market this past April. On so many levels, Route One's involvement in this film was an exercise in calculated risk-taking. Colossal is such an interesting film to examine. Um, and it, it's so exciting for me every day. And I, you know, I have to admit that I am one of the people who is very skeptical. I was like, I don't know if I understand it. Um, because on paper it is, it's, I mean, it's very strange and a testament to Russell's ability to kind of think outside the box. He really saw that Nacho's vision was going to deliver on this. I mean, the movie is so special. It's really incredible that it's able to kind of merge genres and yet be this really strange metaphor for kind of killing your demons. And, and I think, yeah, it's a movie where as a company, we definitely took a risk and a lot of companies did not, you know, Voltage developed it with Nacho longer than we did. We came on board, uh, just sort of in the pre-production phase, but even in the production of the movie, it was, it was so unique and, and working in Korea and, and kind of using our pieces to, to bring another sensibility of a different, you know, it's like, it's like you're touching on so many different pieces. 
of where we're at right now, right? The world's becoming smaller. So you're connected from, you know, East-West is really more joined than we think. The conversation around women and, and her relationship with the men in her life, which is really the crux of the story, is very topical. I, I love the film. I'm so proud of how it turned out. And I think you're right. We, we made a decision. We went with Neon as a new distributor and they're a great, interesting company that's trying to sort of also adjust how they work in the marketing space. And we worked with a company called Legion M to help us with that part that, you know, really cultivates a community and audience. And it's the perfect movie for that because it's got genre elements. It also definitely speaks to what you're saying where, you know, it is thinking outside the box, taking a risk, kind of innovation in itself in that you're, you're really using it to test the boundaries of where we're at right now. What makes filmmaking such a challenge is this very issue of risk management. Audiences seem to crave things they've never seen before, to be surprised in other words, while the financiers and the banks that support them tend not to like surprises. Hence the paradox. The money side keeps seeking comparable films with which to measure their risk. The creative side would like nothing better than to make films that are incomparable. Production companies are forever walking the line between playing it safe at the risk of boring audiences and trying something bold that pushes those boundaries at the risk of scaring the industry away. So I asked Sophia where she and her company fell on that risk yield spectrum. I'm not necessarily risk averse. I always look at things kind of in the middle because I do agree with the the mindset of like we've, we've discussed kind of looking at, okay, where can we take those risks? I, the hardest part is we're dealing with such large sums of money, right? And I think that the challenge is, especially as an independent company, is to what thresholds can you push the risk with the money you're being given? And certainly, if there was a real formula, everyone would do it. And I think that's sort of going back to our first question is like, there isn't really a formula. And then, you know, the, there was a formula that sort of existed for the pre-sale market for the foreign, but it's not there anymore. You can take steps to adjust where your risk parameters are, but at the end of the day, the business itself is a risk. But it's never going to not be that way. I mean, we've we've made movies where we've had the best, biggest stars, and they haven't worked, and we've made movies that didn't have the stars, and they worked. So it's it's a really fascinating dynamic. It's worth noting here that box office history is littered with examples of over-engineered films that failed because financial considerations were put ahead of story. What might seem like a bulletproof concept on paper can backfire in practice. Like so much in life, one should beware of easy shortcuts to success. So I put it to Sophia that even when it comes to generic entertainments, such as horror films, it rarely pays to do an over-packaged knockoff of what worked before. Not when there are so many competing forms of entertainment chasing your leisure time dollar and discernment. Yeah, I agree. I was going to say that um, I think a perfect example is Baywatch. I think that, it, to me, screams business decision over creative. Um, and it's why it didn't really perform. And it's, you have the biggest star in the world and it's not performing. It feels like a bunch of people sat in a room and said, this is what will work for the audience. This is what the kids will want, you know? And I agree with you completely. You should start your conversation from story because that's, again, why do we listen to stories? Why do we tell stories? Why do we want story? If you can achieve a story that everyone wants to hear or a certain part of the population wants to hear or see, you're going to get them. And it's a matter of how you position it. But if you start with, hmm, how can I make money off of my audience? <laughs> I think it's pretty clear that's where you started. And, and I, I think in the horror, to answer your horror part, I think 
horror, I'm not, a, I'm not a horror fan, but I think the horror audience is very sophisticated. You can't just make a horror film and assume it's going to work. You have to be aware of the tropes and the traditions and the, you know, sure, it's very formulaic in its style and in the genre, but in order for it to be successful, you have to be aware of those steps and either poke fun at that, raise it up or elevate it in order to be successful. I think that's why, you know, one out of 10 really knock it out of the park. I don't think it's because, oh, the horror audience just doesn't care. You really have to understand. That's why we stay away from it because we just don't watch enough of it and we don't understand it. So we're like, if we make this, we're going to look like we're trying to make it for money as opposed to passion about the idea. You know, you don't ever want to start with, how can I make money? Because you're not going to make money. <laughs> it's, it's not the business to do that, you know? So if it all comes down to passion about the idea, what on Route One's current development and pre-production slate is Sophia and passion about making? I am so excited about so many things. We've really pushed into television this year, and we have a lot of things that we're working with. It's some, some stuff that I can't speak about yet, but just material that I am beyond excited about um, because it means we're not going to be just spending, you know, 90 pages. It's going to be a, like we get to go into a world. And the, the stuff that we have in development, I'm, I'm very excited about. But in addition to that, um, our, our script, The Claim by Damien Chazelle, uh, which we've had for many years is going to be something that we're focusing on getting made, uh, hopefully in the fall or winter of next year. Um, and that's, a, that's something I'm really excited about. Uh, I mean, Damien is so talented as a writer and a director and, and this script is beautiful and, and we're in the process of finding a director for it now. So that's been really fun. And then a script that I found last year called Palmer, which is sort of a story about tolerance in a time where right now, you know, we really need to hear more stories about tolerance. It's a project that uh, I'm really, really excited about. We have Fisher Stevens directing and it's written by Cheryl Guerrero, who's a writer that I absolutely adore and is incredibly talented. And then the other project is a project that I actually found through a competition we did called Sabaya. And, and this project, I'm really, I, I'm hoping this next draft really works because she, uh, Dorothy Bertram, who wrote it, wrote this incredible story about two women who escape from being cap held captive by ISIS. And it's incredibly compelling. And it's based on a lot of true events. And it, it, it revolves around um, this sort of all-woman army that they kind of pose as ISIS members and help rescue women who've been captured. It's very, it's, it's a great story. So I'm very excited about that too. <laughs> I have had to do so much research to get my head wrapped around this part of the world because it, it isn't a part of the world I know a lot about. But uh, essentially the two women who were captured are Yazidi women from northern Iraq. Obviously the Yazidis are one of the first groups that ISIS went after to kind of capture and enslave. It's really fascinating because there's a lot of stories right now too about other women who've gone into really battle ISIS. It's going to be a challenge to get that going because obviously it's highly political. Um, it's I mean, a highly difficult film to um, navigate um, both politically and also just in terms of, ta again, finding new talent and, and being authentic and, and making sure that we're being con socially conscious about what we're putting out. You know, I'm probably going to be shooting a short for it. We're going to try to do a short proof of concept as a test to see if this helps, uh, kind of a la Whiplash, doing a test run to see where the audience really is and, and if there's a real appetite for it. And um, and that's something that I'm going to work on. It's definitely uh, the, the opportunity to explore where a story can go is, it's really fun. And it's, a, it, 
totally different mindset, but I'm, I'm really enjoying it. I do think that in the future it'll be content and we won't really be deciphering film television. It'll just be the length, you know, it'll be like, well, is it five minutes? Is it three hours? Is it 400 hours? Um, I think that's where we're going. So all this is very exciting. I'm, I'm like, I feel great every day. I get up, I'm like, I get to go tell stories. It's so fun. You've been hearing from Sophia Dilly, the executive who evaluates film TV and digital interactive opportunities for Route 1 Entertainment, and also supervises their production for a company intent on creating a diversified portfolio of highly marketable entertainment projects. Listening to how her company has shifted strategy offers an illuminating insight into where the marketplace is heading right now. It wasn't so long ago that basically every movie idea had to be sold twice, at least. First, to risk-averse foreign distributors, consumed with their own fears of losing money in an increasingly uncertain market. And then to audiences, who want to see something they've never seen before. As has been noted before, trying to find the right project and the right package to satisfy both of those moments in time, separated by 18 months of what you hope is great execution, is an extremely tough proposition. Well now, instead of trying to resolve that tension, producers are bypassing that first pre-sales hurdle and going more directly to the consumer. They're doing this by either partnering up with a new breed of middleman that has a more immediate sense of its audience needs, the so-called OTTs, or subscription video on demand services, or else they're exploring longer form of content for television, a world not locked into many of the constraints that are burdening independent cinema. And in both cases, creative risk-taking is seen as a competitive advantage in order to stand out across the endless landscape of viewing choices. In the soccer world, the phrase Root One refers to a direct, no-nonsense style of playing in which the ball is kicked high and long upfield towards the goal. As Sophia has made clear, using similar tactics creatively, i.e. going straight for the bottom line without thinking about the intricacies of telling a good story, does not score with audiences. But from a business point of view, going more directly to the consumer clears so much of the second-guessing by gatekeepers that stands in the way of creative risk and excitement. That's it for me. Tune again to Filmonomics Slated for more insightful interviews coming very soon. And if they inspire you, please leave a review on our iTunes podcast page. It's our own most direct route to spreading the word. Mm -hmm.